So one more just really quick announcement that I, I wanted to do. Um, this Thursday night at 6.30 here in the worship center is our, our monthly prayer night. Uh, this is perhaps the most important thing that we do as a church. Uh, we get together and we pray. And so let me, let me explain a little bit about what the night looks like. Because I think there's some um, reservations. Uh, we don't want to come because it, we don't, or we think that we have to pray in front of people and like that's just off the table. That's not what this night is. Uh, every month, the third Thursday, uh, we have stations set up. So four stations uh, with prayer prompts. And what it looks like is that you come in and you just work your way around the room praying through those prompts as quickly or as slowly as you desire. It's very much a you and God thing, but there's power in us doing it together. And so I would like to personally invite you to come. It's not been something that's been super well attended, and I get it. We're busy. It's one more thing to add to the schedule. But if you have some time Thursday night, 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour, whatever that looks like, please come join us in the worship center at 630. I promise you, I promise you, you'll be blessed by it. And I think our ministry will be as well. Like if we're not a church that prays, as we'll talk about here in a second, then, then we're, we're missing the mark. So Thursday at 630. Uh, we are today in between series. And so we finished up the sacrificial life. Last week was Fuse Sunday. Next week, we are going to kick off a series that will take us into Easter that I believe might be the most important thing that we talk about this entire year. Uh, Pastor Dustin has been kind of working on, on formulating the, the roadmap for this, and he and I are going to, going to spend some time teaching over the course of the next month or so about a, an issue, a topic, um, that if, if we don't do correctly or well, I think we're going to put a ceiling on the ministry here at Ignite Wesleyan much lower than I believe God wants to put it. And so, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Uh, I'm just going to tell you, I think it's going to be good. It's going to be a lot of fun. Shameless plug, invite a friend next week and, and come back. We'll have the baskets out at the right time, so it'll be much, it'll be much better, I promise. Um, so today, uh, I have the privilege of, of just kind of, we call it kind of a one-off sermon, where it's not a sermon series, and, and I, or whoever teaches and preaches, has the ability to kind of choose, like, this is where I want to go. And we had something planned, uh, but, but we've, we've flipped the script a little bit. And so let me give you some context as to, as to what I want to do today and, and how we arrived at this point. When we prepare sermons, whoever's teaching, that there's one of two ways to go about it. The first way is what we call topical. A topical sermon is where we identify a topic like marriage or giving or uh, service, greed, like well, whatever it is, right? Like we, we find a topic and then we find scripture taken in its context to teach about that topic, topical sermon. The second way is, is what we call an exegetical sermon. And it's a little bit different in that we simply jump into God's word and we allow the word of God to take us where it goes. So there's no topic, we just simply teach the word of God. And I think if done correctly, both of these methods are fine, and they can be really effective. I think there are some preachers and teachers, and maybe some of you who have passionate feelings one way or the other about what should be done and when it should be done, uh, but we do them both here, and I think that, relatively speaking, we do a, a good job um, communicating those things, whether it's exegetical or topical. That said, my heart beats for the exegetical sermon. I love it. There is nothing I love more than sitting down in God's word and just allowing it to take me where it goes. 
And what happens inevitably is, is I learn something new. Like God teaches me something that like I, I've, read, I've read this scripture dozens of times, hundreds of times, and I jump in it and I'm like, where did that come from? That is incredible. And so, so when, I, when I get up and preach and I teach, any of us really, like that's, that's, that's our motivation. So uh, let me give you an example. So last week, um, we had a, a sunny day, which was awesome. After the, the, last Sunday actually, I think it was in the upper 30s, maybe 40s. And so we sent the kids outside. It's like, hey, like we're going to kill you if you don't get out of this house. And so we, we sent them outside and Grayston, my son, was out for hours playing in the snow. Uh, and, and, and this is kind of what, what he looked like. Because he's a Wyoming kid, he's got short sleeve and snow pants, which is just bizarre. But, but he was out there, he was digging for hours and he was shaping and molding. And then he comes running into the house. He's like, mom, dad, you've got to come. Mom, dad, you've got to come. And they're like, well, what's wrong? Like, did one of your sisters get hurt? Did her, the horses get out? Our dog Dogs eating chickens, like we don't know what's going on, and we go out, and, and this is what we see. He was so excited that he had made this horse. <laughs> when we when we stand up here and we we teach and we preach, like like that's our heart. It's like, guys, you've got to you've got to come check this out. Like you've got to open your Bibles and you've got to see this incredible thing that God has done. I can't wait to show you what God has taught me. Like, it's with, with passion and joy and privilege that we get to do this. And so I, I hope, I hope, no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what baggage you bring in here this morning, that we can just put that aside for just a moment, and, and I want you to watch what God does. Because we're going to jump into a book that I am pumped about. So go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Jude. And if you don't know where that is, go to the end of the Bible and start working your way forward. So in between the epistles that John wrote in the book of Revelation is this like, like if you blink, you will miss it. It is one page in most Bibles. It's one chapter. It's a letter written to um, several churches uh, early on in the existence of the church. And so as you're, as you're turning, we, um, you know, we typically do like, uh, we call them bumper videos or transition videos where uh, we, we play something that allows us to kind of transition the kids out. It allows the speaker to get set. Uh, and we didn't do that this week. We kind of had a generic one. Uh, one, because, um, you know, one-week sermon doesn't make a ton of sense to, to create uh, a video. The second thing is, like, like we, we just couldn't figure out, like, what song would go with this sermon. Like, like we... we um, There you go. We, we, we played that like a hundred times this week. I'm so sick of that song. Okay, um, so go ahead and open your Bibles to Jude. We're going to start in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop here for a moment because we're introduced to the author of this letter, and we're given some clues as to who he was. We know two things. We know his name, and we know who his brother is. So Jude would be a name that's short for Judas. If you know that, it's like, like Tom, Thomas, Mike, Michael, 
Gabriel gave, like the list goes on. Like, so that would it be a, a name uh, that probably his formal name would have been Judas. And, and, and perhaps he changed his name but because of the reputation that other Judases had had after the death of Jesus Christ, right? He didn't want to be labeled as that guy, and so he went by a different name, by the name of Jude. So we know his name is Jude. We also know that his brother is James. And you'll notice in the text that, that the author, or Jude, doesn't clarify at all who it is. Like the assumption is whoever's reading this knows exactly who James is. It would be very obvious who James was. And so you go back historically, and the only James in the early church of that significance would have been Jesus's brother. Which, which then, if, if Jude is the brother of James, makes him what? Brother of Jesus. That's significant. Take a look at Matthew 13, 55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Now, he doesn't explicitly say that that's who this is. Most scholars, most, most researchers, most commentators would say that, yeah, there is significant chance that the person who wrote this letter would have been none other than the brother of Jesus Christ himself. And that is significant. Significant. In the Gospels, the relationship that Jesus had, rather his brothers, Jesus' brothers had with Jesus, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. We don't have a ton of information, but when we do, like the picture that was painted wasn't one of like one happy family. Mark 3, 20 through 21, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he is out of his mind. His own family, assuming presumably his brothers, thought he was crazy. He was a madman. Now, I suspect growing up with Jesus probably was a difficult thing, right? Like, like, like everything that Mary had to, to, to know what being a mom was like comes from raising the Savior of the world. His brothers had some pretty big shoes to fill. Like, boys, James, why can't you clean your room like your brother Jesus? Look at it. It's, it's immaculate. Jude, can't you just be respectful like your brother Jesus? Like, he never argues or talks back. So, so to say that they had resentment probably built up for or from him, like, I don't think that there's a stretch in that. And so you probably did not have to convince them to say these things like he was out of his mind. Or if you flip over into the Gospel of John, it says this, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee he did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festivals of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to, to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one wants to, who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe him. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus could only be one of three things, and we've talked about this before. Uh, to say that Jesus was simply a good teacher isn't possible. To say that he simply was a good person isn't accurate. 
He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. He was either someone who lied about who he was, which is how his brothers saw him in the Gospel of John. They didn't believe who he was, so he was either a liar, or he was a crazy person, a madman, a lunatic, which is how his brothers portrayed him in the Gospel of Mark, or, or he was Lord. One of those three. And in the Gospels, if you had approached the brothers of Jesus, James or Judas, and you had asked them, like, like tell me about your brother, you know what they would have said? They would have said, he's, he is out of his mind. We, <laughs> that guy, he's eccentric. And so when we open up the book of Jude and we begin to dive in it, it's noteworthy how he begins. Something has changed. Something has shifted in his frame of reference. Something has, 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 has happened in his life to view his brother, who he once saw as a crazy person, who he didn't believe, to now he's describing him as, as the savior of the world. Verse 1, one more time. Judas, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. His first sentence in this book, he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. It's the first thing. Neither James nor Jude identify themselves as Jesus' brother. Why? It's because they, their kinship wasn't as significant as his lordship. And they saw him not as their brother anymore, but as the, the very Lamb of God who died on the cross for their sins. A servant of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating to me that neither one of them plays the I'm Jesus' brother card. I think I would have. I know I would have. You don't, you don't have a table for me? Mm. Man, my brother Jesus is not going to be happy about this. <laughs> Sorry, officer. Yes, I know I was speeding. I was just daydreaming about all the amazing times I had with my brother Jesus, <laughs> the Savior. But yeah, please go ahead and give me a ticket. He doesn't do that. He, he describes himself as a save, or servant of the Savior of the world. And he continues. Verse 2. Verse 3, rather. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share— I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So Jude sits down to pen this letter, and he has a, he has a roadmap for where he was going to go. He's like, hey, I, I'm going to write these churches, and we're just going to talk about how awesome Jesus is and how incredible our salvation is. But something happens. Either he gets word of something, or the Holy Spirit nudges him, and he, he shifts his focus in his letter. He's like, hey, I was going to tell you about Jesus, but actually it's been brought to my attention that things aren't going super well in the church, that there are people who have infiltrated your ranks, who are sitting among you, who are worshiping with you who who sheeps in wolves clothing he says they they turn the grace of god into a, a license for immorality 
It's people who are, are Christian by name only. Now, now, hang with me here because I, I don't think you have to stretch too far to connect what Jude is writing about to perhaps what the church, not Ignite Wesleyan necessarily, but the, the big C church is dealing with. It's people who would call themselves Christians, people who perhaps even said a prayer, who checked the boxes, people who have, have been baptized, they checked the boxes, people who give to the church, they check the boxes, but, but people who have never actually handed the keys of their heart over to Jesus Christ. Christians by name only. And they have what, what I would call cheap grace. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a, I said this prayer, I'm going to live my life the way I want it because, you know, I've got my Jesus card. They call themselves followers of Jesus, but they have no intention of ever actually following him. So in addition to, to having this license for immorality, they also deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. So, so they have this kind of and Jesus mentality. So, so it's I have this and I have this and I'll sprinkle a little bit of this here and a dash of this and Jesus and I should be good to go. I'll live my life, but so long as I have and Jesus, then we're, we're, we're set. But as we talked about for the last month, it, it was never supposed to be an and Jesus relationship that we have with him. It's only Jesus. Everything we are and all that we have and how we view every aspect of life comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus' uh, presence in our life isn't an additive. It's, it's the main ingredient that, that we are formed from. But Jude says there's people that have infiltrated the church that have begun to worship among you who, who pervert the gospel in this way. And he continues, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt. Let me stop here for a second. Um, so, so Judah's going to start to list some examples of, of what God has done. So God has a track record, as we're going to see, of dealing with injustice, dealing with people who don't follow him, who don't obey him. Like grace and mercy, they're abundant, but, but justice will always be served. And so as Jude writes, he's going to say, hey, like, guys, I know you already know what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyways. And I chuckle a little bit because I think as he was writing that, he assumed that the people that he described in verses 1 through 3 were probably listening to this letter. Right? He's like, so, so I, I know you already know this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. Hopefully the people that I just described, hopefully they pay attention. Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned them or their proper dwelling, he has kept them in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal life. What's the point of that? It's that God doesn't deal well with people who come in and pervert the gospel. But he has a track record and a history of taking care of injustice, reconciling that. And then he continues. If you skip on down to verse 11. Jude uses a, a phrase that Jesus used a lot in his ministry. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. 
They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. What does that mean? The way of Cain would be religion without faith. Again, hear these words and and just think about what you know of the, the church in general. Balaam's error is religion for profit. Korah's rebellion is rejecting God's ordained authority. Skip on out of verse 17. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. So they said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. I'm going to read that again. It's a group of people that has come and is a part of the church that follows mere natural instincts. The Spirit isn't present. Jude's echoing what I think Paul was describing in his final letter when he wrote to Timothy. He said, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so he gives this warning, this really significant, important warning. He says, but here's how you're going to withstand it. Here are the tools that you need to be able to deal with what is going to happen. Verse 20, he says, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring to you or bring you to eternal life. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith. So, so how do we deal with this? What's our role? What's the expectation? He says the first thing that you have to be as a church is one that is grounded in the truth. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. How does a church withstand this? Whenever or whatever this looks like, it's like the first and foremost, we have to be seekers and consumers of the truth. It's truth. That's it. Like, we have to be a church that uncompromisingly, unwaveringly stands in the truth that is the Word of God. Like, there are a lot of things that can change in this world. There are a lot of things that can develop, but you know what doesn't change? God's Word. You have to be grounded in the truth. You have to know that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the way to to the Father, that there's no other path. Like, we have to be confident that Jesus lived a life that we could not live, died a death that you and I deserved, and triumphantly walked out of his tomb so that you and I wouldn't be stuck in ours. Like, we we have to be firm in that truth. It doesn't change. You can't add to it. It's the truth. Second, he says, once you've consumed this or you 
continue to consume it. He says we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. Truth, prayer. Truth, prayer. Say it again. Truth, prayer. For the church to be the church that God has destined it to be. And again, we're talking big C church, although we certainly fall under that umbrella. We have to be consumers of the truth. We have to be students of prayer. We, we have to be a people who prays without ceasing. We, we pray on the way to work, in the classroom, on the way home, when we're out having fun, before we go to bed, before we eat. Like, it should be a constant thing. Because, like, it's, again, it said in the text, if we are left to our own instinct, you know where we end up? In really bad places. The only hope that I have on getting through anything I do well or good is through prayer. Begging God, don't let me mess this up. Help me, Lord. Draw me closer to you. Take this situation and change it, or, Lord, change my heart so I can see your will in it. Consumers of truth, we are students of prayer. I read those two things, and um, I read this, the text up until this point, and, and there's, something, there's something in me that gets defensive, maybe is the word, maybe it's protective. Maybe it's like, like we have an obligation to, like, to not let this happen, to stand in truth. Like, to, 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 to somehow uh, help funnel this, because I, I don't want this to be our reality. Like, and so I read this, and I'm like, okay, God, how do we take care of this? What do I need to do as a follower of Jesus Christ to make sure this does not happen here? And I love that Jude doesn't stop in this letter. And this is where God met me this week in a really incredible way. He, he says, all right, here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to handle this. Once you're grounded in truth, once you are constantly praying, he says in verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy. Mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Okay. <laughs> My natural instinct probably was wrong. It doesn't sound like we're supposed to close the doors to these people. It doesn't sound like it's our job to prevent them. It sounds like it's our job to welcome them and love them. If Jude doesn't say, hey, you need to find these people and you need to kick them out of the church. If they don't look like you, if they don't talk like you, if they don't dress like you, if they don't believe like you, we have no use for them. Send them on their way. That's not what he says. He says there, there are going to be those people that are a part of your body. There are going to be men and women who just don't get it yet, a part of your, a part of your worship. And that's okay. Have mercy on them. Hate the sin. Says, hate even the clothing that touches the sin. But man, have mercy. Save him from the fire. Because if you don't, no one will.
had a seminary professor. Um, it's my, my, the first seminary I went to, um, not Wesley Seminary, so it clearly wasn't a Wesleyan teacher that told me this, but uh, he, he was talking to a group of, of us that he was meeting with, and um, these kind of things came up. What are we as a church supposed to do? How do we respond to people who, who just do things differently than me, who believe things differently than I do, who um, advocate for things that are actually counter to the truth that I stand firm on? And he said, boys, the, the church has to stand for something, so maybe they shouldn't be there. <laughs> so for years I wrestled with it. The balance of, of, of what is it? I, I absolutely agree the church has to stand for something. Like, like we, can't, we can't simply go with the flow of society. But if, if we don't open the doors of this room, of this church, then, then no one else does. And if we don't show them the love of Christ, I'm not sure they're ever going to see it. If we don't show them what mercy looks like, then... then the, find ourselves in a hopeless situation. You saw the, have you seen the movie, Jesus, the Jesus Movement movie? If you haven't seen it, I would absolutely recommend going and seeing it, but it's like, that's that story. It was a church that was willing to open their doors to a group, to a, a sub-segment of, of culture and society uh, to come into their church. And because of that, the word of God spread like fire across the country. And, and we, he, we hear that, and I'm with, like, maybe you think this, I know I do, we think, well, man, there, there's risk in that. Like, I'm really, really afraid if we do that, then somehow, like, this is gonna be corrupted, that we're gonna be changed. Like, like we're always afraid that we're gonna, we're gonna take one step closer to the, what the world says right, and, and, right? Like, so we, we say, I don't know how to, how to handle this. And so it's, it's, it's truth, prayer, mercy. And so we get to a place where we find ourselves here giving mercy, and all of a sudden we see ourselves wavering, and we see ourselves being pulled into where society is saying that we should go, then guess what we should do? Go back to step one. Truth, prayer, mercy. Truth, prayer, mercy. Truth, prayer, and mercy over and over and over again. We are constantly welcome. We are, we are bringing people in. We are showing them in the love of Christ. And we are saying, yeah, you know what? Like, like the, the lifestyle that you are living, the things that you believe, like that is not truth. But guess what? I love you anyways. Let me teach you what real love looks like. Let me show you what real hope looks like. Let me, let, me, let me walk you through this faith that has completely changed me because if you only knew what Jesus Christ has done in my life, you would be tripping over yourself to follow him. Truth, prayer, mercy. See, the beauty of what Jesus did and how he modeled this so perfectly for us is that he constantly met people where they were. And guess what happened? They changed. He didn't. Jesus met with sinners over and over and over again. Tax collectors, people that, that did not adhere to the law, people that no one else would have found themselves around. He met with them. They changed. He didn't. 
That's our call, church. That's who Jesus Christ has commanded us to be. We, we, we welcome the world. We stand on truth. We are constantly praying. We are giving mercy. And, and, and what's going to happen is, is they're going to change. The truth isn't. We're not. That's not to say that we have all the answers and that we're perfect and that we won't continue to develop as we grow closer to God and we consume his word. But, but, but overall, right, you understand, like, the, the world comes in, the people who don't believe what we believe, they come in, they change, we don't. And the world changes in ways that, that, that isn't otherwise possible. For years, the church has operated on the, this idea that you need, to, um, you need to believe something before you belong, and then you can become. I think that's wrong. I, I think our, our, our commandment and the pathway that we should take is that, no, you, you belong here. You belong no matter what you have, who you are, the baggage that you are carrying, you belong here. And we hope that because we are welcoming you, then you will believe. And guess what happens when you believe? You become who you were supposed to be. It happens. It's only possible. We stand in truth. We are advocates of prayer and we are constantly extending mercy. Let's pray.